had a birthday a couple days ago, and um, December birthdays are tough, you know, especially as a kid. Growing up with the December birthday, you always get the two-for-one cop-out from people. And this is your birthday Christmas gift. You know, to somebody who has a birthday in July, you want to tell them, here's your, here's your birthday Christmas gift, you know, in July, and see how that goes. But uh, I think I take heart, though, because Jesus also struggled with that. His birthday was close to Christmas as well. <laughs> and so when the wise men show up, you know, he's a couple of years old, and they hand him these gifts, um, you know, you wonder, did the wise men have a concept of age-appropriate gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's sort of like opening the box of underwear under the tree, you know? And whenever I got underwear for Christmas, I always wondered, you know, like, if it wasn't for Christmas, would I not have these? (laughs) Christmas is not for underwear. Christmas is for gifts. (laughs) So anyway, what's crazy is when you get older, you start liking those gifts. (laughs) All right, clean underwear. Well, I remember as a kid, one of the great things about holidays was being able to get up early and all throughout the week going and watching TV. And I'd get up early and watch, you know, cartoons. And, you know, Comedy Capers was on, Keystone Cops, and these old, you know, cartoons that would be there. Uh, And another thing that would always happen is I... As I watched these cartoons, in the middle of the commercial, there would be this announcement that I never understood, and it went something like this. It said, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. And for like 60 seconds, we'd sit and listen to this, you know, this, what is that, a minor second or something in in intervals? And then after it was over, they'd say, this has been a test. And he's all happy. This has been a test of the emergency broadcasters, the broadcasters in your area in connection with the FCC and other authorities. I mean, I've heard it so many times that I pretty well remember it as a child. And then they say, this concludes this test. And I thought, what did you do? You played a minor second for 60 seconds. So I, I said, well, I guess it helps them. They're paying for broadcast time to basically just have this commercial that made no sense. Well, I still don't understand what all that was about. Here I am at 51 years old, and I don't understand that. But one thing that I did get from that commercial that I thought was helpful, or I, I, I hoped that it might be helpful, was wouldn't it be great if God gave us those kind of announcements? For the next 60 days... Your faith is going to be tested. This is only a test. And what would also be great is after that 60 days is over, if you hear a voice that says, this concludes this test, <laughs> you can resume to your, to your normal life. Well, actually, God doesn't announce his tests, does he? God's tests are always pop quizzes. They are never uh, anticipated. And each test is tailor-made to fit. Turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 4. And let's continue through 
our series in the Gospel of Mark. As we know, we get tests in an academic setting after instruction, and usually they begin with those terrible words, take out a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> the purpose of academic tests is to see how much information you know. The purpose of God's test in our lives is to see how much information you will apply. God's test is not about content. It is about character. When he is testing us, it's not name the names of the Bible in order, but, but let's see how you can apply the Bible to your life. And that's what we get starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark 4, 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Well, let's pause for a second and wrap our minds around the context. On that day, remember as we've talked about going through the book of Mark, Mark, as well as any other book that you go through in an expository way, verse by verse, and a series, is not a bunch of standalone messages. They connect. And, and so you've got to keep one message in mind as you're going through and, and reading it. Same as when you read through the Bible. You read through the Bible and you read sections at a time, but you've got to keep the whole. Uh, Kathy is going through Romans right now in her study in BSF, and so she and I talk through the book of Romans, and often we will come back to the big picture. And coming back to the big picture of Romans helps us understand, you know, the little bitty piece of Romans that whatever it is that we're talking about for that week. The same is true in Mark. On that day, what day is that? Well, obviously, it's the verses right before that, but it's not just the verses right before that. It goes all the way back to chapter 3, verse 20. So turn back to chapter 3, verse 20, and let's review this day that Mark is referring to. Chapter 3, verse 20 begins with Jesus coming home, which is to Capernaum, not to Nazareth, but to Capernaum, his adopted home. And the crowd gathers so much that they can't even eat a meal, and his own people come out to take custody of him because they say he's lost his senses. You remember that? Where Jesus' family comes and they gather basically at Peter's house to take him away because they say he's lost it. They, they pull the guys up with the white coats to take Jesus away because they really believe that Jesus has lost it. So his family thinks that he's, that he's lost his senses. Very next verse, the, the scribes and religious leaders say that Jesus is possessed. Then Jesus begins in the verses that follow to teach the people in a different way. Now he teaches them in parables. It's no longer just teaching them plainly, like he did in the Sermon on the Mount and, and earlier in the book of Mark. But he's teaching them now in parables. And so his disciples kind of pull him aside in chapter 4, verse 10, and his disciples begin asking him about the parables. In other words, why are you teaching them in parables? In fact, I think in Matthew, Matthew's version of this, he asked that very they asked that very question to Jesus. Why are you teaching them in parables? You haven't done this before. And Christ goes on to explain, as he says here in Mark 4.11, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. 
Of course, the kingdom of God wasn't a mystery, as we've seen throughout Mark, and as you've read throughout the Old Testament, you realize that the kingdom of God was very clearly predicted. You want a great picture of it, you look at Daniel. Daniel does a great job of talking about the kingdom of God and preparing not only the kingdom, but also the king. even talks about resurrection in the final chapter of how Daniel will be resurrected to enter into uh, his, his uh, reward. And so the kingdom of God was the literal, physical kingdom of God, and Jesus was offering it to Israel. And if you will repent, Jesus says, the kingdom of God I will give to you. But Jesus anticipates, based on the leader's uh, assessment that he's possessed, that Israel is not going to accept him. They are not going to repent. And as a result, that particular generation is going to lose the opportunity to get the kingdom of God, and it's going to go to another generation of Jews, which is in the future, uh, when Christ comes again. So, as a result, Jesus begins changing his teaching method to parables, and he teaches a lot in parables. In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at some of those. Uh, namely, one of the parables is that the sower sows seed on the ground, and, and depending on the, 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 the value of the soil, depends on how well that seed takes root. Whenever someone teaches the Word of God in our lives and scatters seed on our hearts, the receptivity that we have to God's truth all depends on the receptivity of our heart, the preparedness of the soil of our lives. And so now all of this teaching has happened. And so now it's time for a pop quiz. Jesus takes his disciples and he tells them on that day, on that very busy long day, when his, when his family tells him that you're nuts, when his leaders tell him that you're possessed, when the people are, are hearing nothing but simply stories and not necessarily interested in God's truth, when Jesus begins to teach in parables, he changes his method and begins to now hint to the disciples that there's going to be a pause between the offer of the kingdom and the fulfillment of the kingdom. Busy day. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. So, let's read on. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So Jesus is in a boat already. You remember when we started Jesus talking about the, the uh, parables in chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about him getting into a boat. And when we looked at that, that, uh, that week, we looked at the sower's cove. Remember that cove where Jesus got in a boat and pushed out a little from the land and it kind of was a natural amphitheater that projected his voice all the way up the hillside where thousands of people literally could have heard him. Well, he's in that boat. He's still in the boat, and he doesn't even get out. It says they took him just as he was, right in the boat, and they crossed over, and a storm hits. The geography, the topography around the Sea of Galilee makes it prone to sudden violent storms. In fact, the, uh, there's an excellent book by George Adam Smith called The Historical Geography of the Holy Land. Let me read just a couple of lines that Smith writes from this, uh, this good book. He says, The atmosphere, for the most part, hangs still and heavy, but the cold currents as they pass from the west are sucked down by a vortex of air, or by the narrow gorges that break upon the lake. 
Then arise those sudden storms for which the region is notorious. It's not just an ancient phenomenon. Um, for the most part, the geography around the Sea of Galilee hasn't changed. The hills are still there, the winds still blow, and the storms still come. In fact, in 1992, there was a storm that was so bad that waves about 10 feet high crashed into Tiberias and did a lot of damage. Um, but it also uh, has affected a tour that we did. Like last year, Kathy and I were leading a tour to Israel, and we were walking down. We weren't on the sea, but we were walking down beside the sea on a dirt road going down the Mount of Beatitudes toward the lake. And we got halfway down this dirt road when one of these famous storms blows in and dumps gallons of water on all of us as we're walking down. And we got soaked to the bone, and our dirt road became a mudslide. And people were falling down. We even had one man fall and break his hip. And uh, we had to go to a, a, the hospital there in Tiberias and have hip surgery. So these waves, these storms, are not just an ancient phenomenon. And the disciples were experiencing a long, uh, uh, let's say a bad ending to a very long day as the storm and this fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat. It says so much that the boat was already filling up. So what's Jesus doing in the meantime? Is he bailing? No, he's sawing logs. Look at verse 38. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is asleep. Now, he wasn't possuming. He wasn't faking it. He wasn't laying in the back going, watch this, see how they handle it. He was asleep. He was exhausted. It was a long and exhausting day. Jesus was a man like us, and he was in the back asleep from a very hard day of ministry, so exhausted that he was asleep in the storm, and the disciples wake him up, and they say, uh, Teacher, don't you care? The New Living Translation renders it this way. It says, Teacher, don't you even care that we are going to drown? And remember who it was that was saying this. These fishermen had fished these waters all their lives. They were sailors on the on this Sea of Galilee. They were not just fishermen that cast their nets from the shore. They had boats. They knew how to, han how to handle these waves. And they were in such a panic, the storm was so bad, that even these guys said, that's it, we are going to drown. The excellent sailors are panicking. Meanwhile, the carpenter is in the back asleep. And they, they determined that Jesus' sleep means that he's apathetic. Don't you even care? I find it interesting what they call him. They call him not Lord, not creator, certainly, but teacher. And they, their accusation to Jesus assumes several things. First of all, the situation is completely out of control. Second, they're going to die. And finally, Jesus doesn't care that it's out of control and that they're going to die because he's asleep. And there's sort of a bit of irony here to where in the disciples' hour of desperation, Jesus is asleep, and it won't be that many more months beyond this where Jesus in his hour of desperation asked his disciples to remain with him and they fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Last week we looked at a few events I read from the news of last Sunday morning, some events that could make us question whether or not God is in control of world events. Because if, if you've noticed world events lately, it seems like the wheels are coming off. The morality of our world has taken a nosedive uh, recently, and it, is, it looks like, you know, Lord, if our goal is this life, then it's not working. Well, thankfully, as we've seen from Jesus' parables, uh, our goal isn't this life. Uh, we have duties. We have goals in this life. But ultimately, our fulfillment is not in this life, but it's in the resurrection. And uh, Jesus tells parables to say, you know, it's like a seed that's planted underground. It's planted, and it looks like nothing's happening. But underground, there's a lot happening that one day it's going to sprout, it's going to bear fruit. Not only that, it's going to be the biggest plant among plants. Well, just as God seems sort of apathetic or doing nothing in the progress of his plan in the world, God can also seem that way in our lives. And that's, that's what the disciples are rebuking Jesus for, if you want to put it in harsh terms here in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He seems apathetic, but how does Christ respond? Verse 39, And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And if it became perfectly calm, he could have said it as quietly as I just did. Which, in that kind of a context, would have felt like he was screaming. Mark's the only gospel that records the words that Jesus used. The stilling of this particular storm is in Matthew, it's also in Luke, but Mark's the only one that's, that gives us what Jesus said. It's only two words in the Greek language, and it's translated here with three words, hush, be still, but you could translate it hush, quiet. And maybe it sounded too redundant to translate it hush, quiet, so they translated it hush, be still. But to the wind... He said, hush, to the waves, be still, and immediately we're told it became perfectly calm, a flat calm. If you look at the margin, literally it says, a great calm occurred. I don't know if you've ever been around the ocean or even lakes after a storm, but it takes a while for the water to calm down. It doesn't just happen automatically once the wind stops. There's churning that just keeps the water going. But we're told Jesus not only caused the, the wind to stop, but also the waves to be perfectly calm. And, and not only does he rebuke nature, but he also rebukes his disciples. And he asks them two questions. First of all, why are you afraid? This is the... Uh, New American Standard 95 version, which says afraid, prior to 95 it said, why are you so timid, which is a, a bit of a timid translation, actually. Even afraid is a little timid. Does anybody have one that says, why are you so cowardly? The, your margin should say that, even if your text doesn't. Why are you so cowardly? That, that's literally what the word means. Why are you guys being cowards? Why are you so weak in this area? 
And then he asks them the question that basically answers why they shouldn't have been cowardly. How is it that you have no faith? Why are you so afraid? Why is it that you have no faith? Why were they afraid? Because they were sailors who were out of control. They had no control of the situation. They've seen Jesus do miracles. They've heard him that very day do miracles. They've heard him teach. In fact, they've heard him teach like no one has ever taught before. They had the lecture, but when it came time for the lab, they failed class. They, they took out a blank sheet of paper, and Jesus wrote a big zero at the top because what they had done was basically shown that they had not been paying attention. How is it that you have no faith? After this long day of me showing you who I am, you have no faith. Jesus' question basically is the solution to the problem of the first one. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so cowardly? The solution is to have faith. The seed had fallen on the soil of his disciples' rocky hearts because afflictions showed up and, and showed their weak faith. You know, they're not just questions for the disciples. They're questions that you and I need to ask ourselves. And let me ask you, what do your current struggles teach you about yourself? Put yourself in the storm or put yourself, just imagine yourself in the current storm that you're experiencing. Because you are. We always have something that feels like a wind howling around us. Um, Habakkuk says the righteous will live by faith. There's never a point in your life where you don't have to have faith. There's never a point in your life where God provides you a situation and that now you go, you know what? I got it. I trust the Lord from here on, no problem. You're always having to trust God with something. There's always something that requires you to trust the Lord. And usually, it's a storm. And often, it's a storm in the area of your competency, like the disciples. The disciples were expert seamen, and yet they were foundering. They were out of control. Christ had put them in a situation of their strength to reveal to them a weakness that went deeper than their competency to their character. What do your current struggles teach you about yourself? What do they teach you about yourself? You know, we're so used to solving our own problems. Uh, you make a phone call, make an executive decision, pull out the credit card, bark an order, ask, you know, Google something. Uh, you can even ask Siri or Alexa these days. You don't even have to wait on the Lord. <laughs> Problem solved. But God has a great way of unplugging your internet, of removing all the strengths that you prop yourself up with to demonstrate that your strengths tend to hide, that you have a need for God. Your strengths tend to hide, that you have a need for God. In fact, one of the greatest weaknesses, if you've thought about it, are our strengths. Because our strengths give us the illusion that we are so competent, we don't need the Lord in this particular area of life. You're such a competent leader, why ask God for direction on which way the ministry should go? I'll just decide myself. 
you're so good at your particular experience in the corporate world or even uh, with inner relationships with people that you think, you know, I don't need to seek God on this. I'll just do what I want to do because it's always worked for me in the past. And all of a sudden, God pulls the slats out from under what you're depending on in your own strength to show that you desperately need the Lord. I read about a man that bought a white mouse. I love this story. He bought a white mouse as food for his pet snake. Have you ever seen this happen? Have you ever seen a snake eat a mouse? It's sort of scary and it's really gross. They eat the thing head first, and that's just that's all I'll say. It's just the weirdest thing to see this snake with two little mouse feet sticking out the back and this long tail still wiggling. Don't look for it on YouTube because you'll find it. So this man buys this white mouse to feed to his pet snake, and he drops the unsuspecting mouse into the snake, you know, aquarium. And, but the snake's asleep, and the mouse lands, and he looks around, and then he sees the snake. And he's real still. He just kind of looks at the snake, and the snake's not moving. The snake's asleep. And so the, the mouse just kind of decides, okay, this snake's asleep. What am I going to do? You know what this little mouse did? Covered the snake up with sawdust. <laughs> True story. And now there's no snake. Problem solved. (laughs) And the owner felt so sorry for this little mouse, he took the mouse out. And he put in a mouse that wasn't that sharp. (laughs) But I read that story and I thought, you know what? We often act like that. We often act like our problems are solved if we just cover it up with sawdust. It is only a matter of time until that snake wakes up. When the storms hit and we have something finally to really trust God for, all of a sudden all your competency from years past, all of the bravery and the faith that you think you have can be abandoned in a moment. These disciples have been sailing the waters all their lives and they they got to the point that it was so bad They said, we are going to die. And Jesus doesn't care. Um, Keep your finger there in Mark and turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans 5, 1. Romans 5, 1 says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's verse 2 there that I really want you to look at. Verse 2 where he says, This faith that has justified us, through whom also 
we have obtained our introduction. Introduction. William Barclay has a good few words on, uh, in his commentary on the letter, the letter to the Romans where he says this about the word there for introduction. It's the Greek word prosagoge, and it has a couple of emphasis. One, it means introduction. It's sort of being introduced to a person of significance, like a king. But then he writes this. But this word has another picture in it. In late Greek, it is the word for the place where ships come in, a harbor or a haven. If we take it that way, it means that so long as we tried to depend on our own efforts, we were temp tempest-tossed like mariners striving with a sea, which threatened to overwhelm them completely. But now that we have heard the word of Christ, we have reached at last the haven of God's grace, and we know the calm deepening, the, the, the calm of depending not only on what we can do for ourselves, not on what we can do for ourselves, but on what God has done for us. This is significant because if you look at the big picture of the book of Romans, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 begins a great section not just on the justification, but on our sanctification or, or on the so what of faith in our daily lives. And this is why when Paul says this, not, not only do we have this introduction to Jesus Christ by faith, but verse 3, not only this, but we exult in our tribulation. In the real stuff of life, we can still rejoice because tr that tribulation brings about perseverance. The storm that you're going through is doing more than simply showing the weakness of your competency. It's showing the need for your character to be strengthened. And your faith, as Paul writes in Romans and as Jesus said to his disciples, how is it that you have no faith? Your faith is the secret to making it through the storm. It was only after Job's suffering that he got a bigger view of God. God told Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. God told the Corinthians, no eye has seen or imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The text shows us that God promises to deliver us through the storms, not from the storms. But the good news is Jesus is there. Seems like he's asleep, but he's not. He is more attentive to your voice than he is to the storm. Kathy and I had some friends who uh, just had a baby year, many years ago. Um, this baby's grown up and has babies of his own now. But when this baby was born, they lived right by a train track. And if you've ever lived by a train track, your first two weeks of living there are miserable. And then after that, you don't even hear the train. I mean, that thing blows through, horn, horns ablazing, and you never hear it. You sleep right through it. But when that mother would hear the newborn cry, she would immediately wake up. Didn't hear the train, but the newborn crying, she immediately wakes up. Think about Christ here in the storm, sleeping through the storm. The wind and the waves are not a problem for the one who created them. But when his disciples speak to him, he awakens. It's the same with us. The storms reveal who you are, and the good news is they also reveal who God is. The storms not only reveal who you are, but they also reveal who God is.
So we ended here at verse 41, where the disciples' response to, um, to Jesus' questions, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Notice they didn't answer the question. It's sort of rhetorical. But look how they respond. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark says they became afraid. This is a different word than the verse before it. The verse before it, the word afraid means cowardly. This afraid, and notice it's not just afraid, it's not just very afraid, very much afraid. This word is a word that in the original language means they were awestruck. They were afraid in the sense that it was, they, they came face to face with something that was so awesome that it, that it terrified them. That it, they froze in the awe of the experience. And they go from simply calling Jesus teacher to questioning, who then is this? that the wind and the sea obey. In this long day, this busy day, they've seen Jesus teach like no other man is taught. They've seen Jesus heal. They've seen Jesus uh, drive out demons. And now they've seen Jesus do something they've never seen him do, and that's command nature. He commands nature. You know, Jesus has a lot more to teach you about himself than you know. You may know Jesus really well, but he's got a whole lot more to teach you that, that you've, never, you've never known about him. For the disciples who have lived and walked with Jesus to ask this question, who is this, shows that Jesus had just only begun to show them who he was in all of his greatness and glory. The same is true of you. You may have walked with Christ all your life, but Christ still has so much more to show you about who he is to you. And now here's something else that's hard. That's that's the good news, but here's news that's also good, but that doesn't feel good initially. God also has more to teach you about you. He revealed to these disciples that they weren't the strong guys that they thought they were. They weren't the competent individuals that they thought that they really needed Jesus down to the depth of the core of their being. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For by him, by Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. This is the Jesus who is asleep in the stern. By him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things created by him and for him. And what Jesus creates, Jesus controls. And that's what they experienced there that day on the Sea of Galilee. Now, we ended here in verse 41, and when we get together next time next year, we'll continue in chapter 5, but let me borrow one verse from chapter 5, the very first verse, to make one more point to you. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country 
of the Gerasenes. Why is that significant? Let me read it again. They came to the other side. Look back at verse chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. See, Jesus said, let's go to the other side. He didn't say, guys, let's go to the middle and drown. (laughs) Let's go to the other side. And what do you know? Jesus was able to make it happen. Simple observation helps you connect those two together and brings an application of truth for our lives that can help you in the storm, and that's this. That Jesus provides for you to do exactly what he commands you to do. It may be rough going, but Jesus provides for you to do exactly what he commands you to do. You may feel he's asleep, but he's not. He's with you. He's more attentive to your voice than he is to the storm. You may feel he's not in control, but he is. He created the wind and the waves. And with two simple words, they're silent. You may feel he doesn't care, but he does. You may feel... Uh, You may be in the storm, and Jesus may be in the stern, but he is far more concerned about you than he is about the storm. You may feel your situation is impossible and that this is it, but nothing is impossible with God. So let me ask you, what, what storm are you in today? Why are you so afraid? Just remember, it's only a test. It's only a test. Let's pray. Be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Our Father, these, these words from this uh, hymn that we've sung so many times have a new relevance to us as we think about the context from which they were written. On the storm on the sea that obeyed your voice, we know that there's nothing in our lives, Lord, that that you cannot calm in a moment. You control it all. You created it all. As we read from Colossians, all things were created by him and for him. He controls it all. And so help us remember that when we cry out to the Lord who seems like he doesn't care, don't you care that we are drowning? When we cry out to him and the storm doesn't stop, We need to remember his question. Help us, Lord. Remember that question. Why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? Lord, we know that if you allow the storm to continue, that there's a reason. It's not because you're apathetic. It's not because you're powerless. It's because your plan is bigger than we can see at the moment. And when you say, let's go to the other side, you don't mean let's go to the middle and drown. You mean let's go to the other side. And so we hang on, we cling to you and to your promise that you give us all we need to do when you command us to do something. All we need to do what you command us to do. 2017, what a year this has been. 
We look toward the next year, Lord, not with fear, but with faith, knowing that whatever is there, whatever storms are going to come our way, we don't need to deal with it in a, in a manner of fear, but we can deal with it in faith, knowing that you are in complete control and that the end is a good end, whatever it is. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.